Amen. Praise the Lord. You can be seated. Not already. Man, welcome in. Whether you are here in person or you are joining us on live stream, we are thankful to have you worshiping with us today at Lindsay Lane North at our 1045 uh, service. Man, we got a lot of stuff that is going on. Man, God is doing some really cool stuff. I mean, like, like Will shared with the baptisms, God's doing some amazing things in the hearts and lives of our folks. We're just busy right now. I mean, our church, we got a lot going on. Um, we are, yesterday, we were double dutying it. We were uh, help working on framing up. I say we, I was not a part of this, uh, but Jeremiah and others uh, were there. We were framing up the second floor now of our building. We were trying to get that done. By the way, if any of you men are available Tuesday night, right? Tuesday night at 5 o'clock, we would love to have you, or any time after that, we would love to have you come and help us with that. I mean, it is a really cool time of fellowship. So that, that's happening Tuesday. Stay on the loop because we'll probably be giving you other opportunities to serve. And any of you men or ladies, no prior experience is needed. Uh, we'll tell you where to nail. They told me, and I didn't mess it up. So I don't think I did. If I did mess it up, they didn't tell me. Um, but we got that. We had our community day last week, a wonderful uh, showing there. I got my first sunburn of the season while I was dispensing cotton candy to the entire uh, community uh, and getting covered in cotton candy. And so I'll just tell you, sugar and sunburn is not a great combination at the end of the day. Uh, but man, it is, it, is, it is exciting to be a part of all the things that are going on externally in our church. And I just want to remind us in this series, After God's Heart, that while God is moving in and amongst us in a, in a public way, what God is concerned about us is not what we are accomplishing for him externally, but what he is accomplishing in our hearts and lives. David was not a man after God's heart because he did a lot of cool things. He slayed a giant and he built a great kingdom and all that. That is not why David was a man after God's own heart. God could give a rip less about the accomplishments unless we are people who are after his heart. Acts chapter 13 is our proof text uh, through this. After his heart being this series in our fourth week, now in this message, uh, it says that he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said that I found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. What does it take to be a man or a woman after God's heart? It is to obey God as he leads. And as he leads, we follow him in faithful obedience. Let us not overthink this, church. Are we where we need to be with the Lord individually? A church who is after God's heart is made up of families of homes that are after his heart. And homes that are, that are after his heart are made up of individuals who are after God's heart. That is what God is concerned with. And what we see in the life of David in this week is David was obsessed with the presence of God. There was a battle going on for the presence of God in David's life. He hungered and thirsted for the presence of God. Of God. Do we have that same desire 
within, within us. You can turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4. We're going to read one text there and then we'll be in 2 Samuel. But what you need to understand in context of David's life is the presence of God in the Old Testament was symbolically and literally embodied in around a piece of furniture known as the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant in Exodus chapter 25, while Moses is still on the mountain, still on Mount Sinai, getting all the law and all the things, God commissions him to have a specific man. He calls the, name by, the, name by, the man by name. Whew. Uh, he calls the man by name. And he, he has him to build a piece of furniture, an ark, meaning a chest, or a coffin, a small box. It's a wooden box made out of acacia wood, and it's surrounded with gold. It's covered with gold. On this ark, there are two angels. There are two cherubims, angelic beings, right, that are created, that are, that are sculpted, and they are put on the ark of the covenant. This is a representation of what we believe the ark of the covenant to have looked like. Uh, again, we don't know entirely, but we do have the description in Scripture. And so it was a chest, and inside of that chest there were three things. The first thing that we're told that was first in the Ark of the Covenant was uh, the stone tablets. The two stone tablets, symbolic of God's law for with His people. God had a law code that they were to abide by. And those Ten Commandments, those stone tablets were placed in there as a representation of God's activity in Israel. The second thing that was placed in there sometime later was Aaron's rod. There was a time where uh, all of the men of Israel placed their staffs, their rods, in, a, in, a, in God's presence. And God selected Aaron. They came back the next day, and Aaron's rod had sprouted all of uh, uh, almond blossoms and actually produced almonds uh, in the, the span of that one night, proving God's miraculous power. So you have God's miraculous law, God's miraculous power, and then later they would gather manna in a golden jar and they would place this manna that God had provided for the people of Israel inside the Ark of the Covenant, which was God's provision. So God's law God's power and God's provision. It was record, historical record, almost a museum of sorts of the activity of God in the history of Israel. And then something miraculous happened. The top of the Ark of the Covenant, the top of the chest there between the cherubims, you, we will read today where it is said that the presence of God rested between the cherubims. And so not just a symbol of God's presence, but a the literal Shekinah presence of God rested between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. This was God's presence with his people. It was what separated them from all the other people groups in the world in this day. It is the thing that was led out before them in battle. It was the thing that when it went to the Jordan River, when they went to the Jordan River at time of harvest where the river was overflowing, as soon as the priests touched their feet in the water carrying the Ark of the Covenant, the waters dried up, the waters stopped. 
and they walked over on dry land. It was the Ark of the Covenant that went around the people, led the people seven days and then seven times on the seventh day around the city of Jericho. That when the people of God would cry out, the walls would fall flat. It was what went before them in battle. Every activity of God that we see as it relates to the Ark of the Covenant, God had commanded them to go out behind it. As the Ark of the Covenant went, they followed hot after it. And so it was a symbol of God's activity among his, amongst his people. But his presence was also physical in the sense that there was the Shekinah presence of God was there. So something, but something unthinkable happens before Saul takes the throne. First Samuel chapter 4, we see God's presence removed. God's presence is removed. Listen to what it says in verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. You remember Samuel, there was a changeover of power. I remember as a kid, my mom reading the Bible stories, the little illustrated Bibles to us, and, and she would always read in the most inflected voice possible. And I remember her saying, Samuel, Samuel. That Samuel would be woken up in the middle of the night by hearing his name called, and he would run to Eli, who was the priest. And he would say, Eli, did you need me? And he'd go, no, go back to sleep. Well, after a couple of times that, he said, hey, God's speaking to you. And so what God tells Samuel is some really bad news. He says, Eli, your sons are garbage. And they're going to die. By the way, you're going to die. And I'm going to take over. So this has happened. Samuel is taking the reins over from Eli. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. And the Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated, oh no, before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. They were defeated by the Philistines. Well, hang on now. This is God's people. They're defeated. Something was wrong. They didn't know it. So they decided to make a plan. And when the people came back to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today from the Philistines, before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Right? This symbol. Let's bring it here from Shiloh. It was placed in the community of, of Shiloh, where it had set for some time, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So let's bring this symbol of God's presence. Let's bring the Shekinah glory of God. We didn't really have any need for it earlier, but now that we've lost this battle, we need to bring in the big gun. So let's bring in the presence of God, and let's get the morale up, and surely we will win, right? That's what they decided. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought up from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim, in the mercy seat there. That's what he's speaking of. And the two sons of Eli, remember, bad report, Samuel gave Eli. Hophni and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all of Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded like it shook the earth. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they heard that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods 
who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was brought in, instant morale boost for everybody, right? They had never seen defeat when the Ark of the Covenant had went before them. Like, they were going to win this battle. It was a foregone conclusion. Regardless of how they had treated the presence of God before then, they were going to win. The enemy was terrified. They had heard almost in legend how God had delivered the people of Israel from the Red Sea, from the Egyptians. Now, their, their details are a little skewed. Remember, this is not the people of Israel. They're like, well, he delivered them in the wilderness. Well, no, they were actually in Egypt, which makes it even more miraculous. But So the, the details were off. It's not God's plural, which is what they served. It was God singular, the God. Details are skewed, but it was legendary, the deliverance of the God of Israel. God, The God of Israel had a reputation, and they were terrified. But somebody finally, finally musters enough strength. We read this and we go, oh, we know exactly how this story is going to go. Right? That God comes in and even though they lost, God comes in and wipes out everybody. Because that's just what he does in the Old Testament. Right? Well, somebody in the Philistine camp gives one heck of a halftime speech. And I get like, I don't know why in my head I get like visions of water boy, right? You remember when Father Boucher showed up at halftime in the, in the mud cast one of the bourbon bowl? Like, that's what I get here when I read this. But there's this whole shift, and there's no real, there's no real fluff in between. It just goes from, oh my gosh, we're terrified, we're going to die, to listen to what this guy tells them. Take courage, verse 9, and be men, O Philistines. Now he's, he's after their man card, right? Lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Right? Finally, somebody's talking some sense in the Philistine camp. And apparently it works. So the Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell that day. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, guess what happened? What Samuel said would happen, happened. They died. Plot twist, right? Everything's trending, like watching your favorite football team play, and everything's trending toward we're going to win, right? And then a second ticks down on the clock. I'm an Alabama fan, so I can say it. Auburn fans aren't allowed to bring this up, right? And the only thing that could happen is that we miss and go into overtime. That's nothing new for us. Like, we miss field goals all the time. That's just what we do at Alabama, right? One second on the clock, but we have a shot to win this thing. And then kick six, right? Like, break our hearts. Everything's trending the right way, and some lunatic Philistine decides to, you know, beat his chest a little bit, and now Israel is destroyed. 30,000 men die. The Ark of the Covenant, the symbol, the, the uh, literal and the figurative symbol of God, of God's activity with his people, is taken captive. Why? Why? After an initial defeat, the Israelites decided 
to treat the Ark of the Covenant like their good luck charm. They brought it into battle like we would bring a rabbit's foot or something. Or a baseball player would not wash his socks until they lose. Like They were superstitious almost about this Ark of the Covenant. And they just believed it was the ultimate trump card that God would do whatever they asked him to do as long as the Ark was there. That is not what we see happen. In every great military victory involving the Ark of the Covenant and God's people, instruction was always given by God on the front end. It was always given by God on the front end. If the Ark of the Covenant was to be taken into battle, it was to be taken into battle because God said, take it into battle. But they just assumed that it was going to work because it had happened before, and they begin to presume on the presence of God. The presence of God for them had become nothing more than their token to win a war. It was all about what God could do for them. Not, never mind the fact that it had been neglected in Shiloh for years. But we're going to bring it. And what's worse, Hophni and Phinehas are the delivery boys. These men in 1 Samuel chapter 2 are described as worthless. They were people who uh, unlawfully took of the sacrifice. People would come and make their sacrifice, and they would steal parts of the sacrifice before it was even offered. There was a portion that the priests were allowed to eat, but they would steal of the good portion, the fatty portion. They would eat the blood of the offering, um, which we do that now, but back then God had told them strict rules, don't do it. These men were disobedient and worthless and corrupt. And now they are carrying the symbol of God into battle. What did we expect would happen? And then what we see is the Philistines, they treat the Ark of the Covenant the same way the Israelites did. Here's this trivial token that's just another trophy and spoil of war. So they take it. To their capital city and they place it in the temple of Dagon. Their God that they serve. And they come back the next day and Dagon has fallen over. Oh darn, let's go pick up our idol and pick up our God and put him back. This is embarrassing. Sorry God of Israelite, of Israel. Let's, Let's pick up Dagon. They go back, they leave, they come back the next day. Guess what's happened? Dagon has fallen over and his hands are gone now. Right? Like they bust it off. And it's like, well, dadgum, this ain't good. Well, this was a symbol of what would happen in Philistia for a long time. As long as it stayed in Philistia, there was trouble. In every city that they would go in, famine and disease and sickness would riddle the place. Defeat would, would go before it. It was not what they thought. The blessing that they thought would come from this trophy was a curse for them. Again, these people, now they're pagans, they don't know any better, but they are being cursed, not blessed, because they have this tangible presence of God with them. Now, I would argue that I see this in my own life. Even in work of the church, it is easy for me to wake up And to never check my schedule with a God who I say is leading me. I just decide to start my day. 
I just decide to study my sermons. I just decide to make my visits. I just decide to do my paperwork. I just decide to enter stuff in my computer and never consider if God has led me and what God is leading me to do. Let me tell you something about the presence of God. The presence of God changes us. And when we get to a place where we are in this rut where nothing has changed in us, we have missed the presence of God. The presence of God is more than a token. It's more than a trophy. God's presence is more than just what he can do for you to make you successful or financially steady or make your kids have a good future. He's more than that. If we don't quit seeking God for all the good things that he can give for us, we will miss the treasure that is the presence of God itself. This is what God is illustrating to the Israelites, and he's illustrating to the Philistines. Listen, so much bad stuff happens to the Philistines, they give it back. Like, shoot, I did not expect this. Y'all can have it. They sent it on some cows. They sent it off and said, y'all have it, right? And they place it in a place called Kiriath-Jerim, and it stays there for 20 years, The entire reign of Saul, it is not mentioned. Saul has no regard. It's in this obscure place that's overseen by a bare minimum number of priests. And it's just obscure in 1 Samuel. There's really no mention of it again. Why? Because Saul was concerned about accomplishing stuff for himself. Well, David comes in. And so secondly, we see God's presence return. David is now the king. We talked about that transition last week. You can go back and listen listen to it if you want to know details if you weren't here. But David transitions as king. He is anointed king publicly in 2 Samuel 5. In 2 Samuel 6, he is going after the Ark of the Covenant. He is not satisfied with it sitting in some obscure place just because it's on Israelite soil. He seeks as a true worshiper, a man after God's heart, he seeks the covenant. And so listen what happens. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. David again gathered all of the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits, on the, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. There's that phrase there, right? He sent after the ark of God. Now, there's some issues here. He brings a really nice cart. This is a nice, fine cart, a fine automobile that's going to carry this place. The problem is, God said, don't carry it this way. Y'all saw the poles on the Ark of the Covenant? That was the way you carried the Ark of the Covenant. You put it on your shoulders and you walked with it. The priests would walk with it. So they get a flat tire. The the Ark starts to waver and is about to fall. And a man named Uzzah grabs the Ark of the Covenant so it doesn't fall on the ground. And instantly he dies. And David pitches a fit. He whines and he complains. And he's like, man, maybe this isn't a good thing to have in Jerusalem. It was bad for the Philistines. He takes it to a guy's house. 
A guy is blessed for three months because he reverences the presence of God that it is. And God blesses this man. And so finally David decides, I'm going back to, I'm bringing this Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. He has a tent built in Jerusalem. And he goes and he gets the Ark of the Covenant. It is a big deal. Look what 2 Samuel chapter 6 verse 14 says. There's a parade going on as this Ark of the Covenant is moved into Jerusalem. David danced, verse 14, before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Read verse 20. And David returned to bless his household, right? Like, hey, we got good things going, got some momentum going, like everything's going great in Jerusalem, like everybody's excited. Let's go home. And he's met by Michael, his wife, who rushes out to meet him, and not the good type of rushing out to meet him, guys. We know, we're talking like Thunder Rolls rushes out to hold him, right? Like, I'm ready to whoop you, right? She rushes out and she says, boy, how the king has shown himself today, right? Listen to what he says. How the king of Israel has honored himself today. Sarcasm is not a new thing. She is being sarcastic. Uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself and David said well let me just stop right stop right there he brings in this ark of the covenant the physical representation and in some ways manifestation of God's presence to his people and he throws a hootenanny of a good time He's dancing around. The word dancing literally means whirling. So he is whirling about. Now, there's a lot made about how David danced and what he was wearing when he was dancing. Okay, There's just a lot made of that. And what I would tell you is it doesn't really matter. Some people believe that he danced naked. Why? Because it's, Michael says later that he revealed himself. So did his little linen ephod... Uh, fall off. We don't know if he danced out of his clothes. I tend not to believe so, although I will say as a kid it traumatized me when I heard that David danced naked and then we started singing songs in church like, I will dance, I will dance, I will dance like David danced. No! Keep the clothes on! Right? I was like, no, I ain't dancing like David danced. Are you kidding me? Absolutely not! Right? And it's even more important today, so don't, all right? So as your pastor, I'm telling you, I'm leading you, don't. Um, but this is what happens, right? So they, they major on this minor detail, right? And we don't know what happens. Michael may have been exaggerating. Now, I recognize that this is the only woman in the history of the world that had ever and will ever exaggerate something to her husband. But this is what Michael, Michael may have been exaggerating, right? Again, sarcasm. 
Maybe she was exaggerating in the fact that he was not in his priestly robe, that he was not in his, his royal attire, adorned as her daddy would have been in public. Her daddy would have never been seen in a linen ephod in his underwear, basically. He would have never been seen like he was always put together and dignified and respectful, and he just he was a statesman and he looked like it, right? He knew why he was there and he looked the part. So we don't know if she was exaggerating or we don't know that in some of that whirling and hooping and dancing that there might have been some driftage of the clothing. We don't know what happened there exactly. But what we know is David didn't care. For once in the history of humanity, somebody cared more about the presence of God than they did the presence of everybody around them. Maybe for the first time, somebody desired to be in the presence of God more than being in the dignified presence of someone else. And David danced. Listen to what he tells his wife. Sweet, sweet Michael. It is before the Lord, verse 21, who chose me above your fathers. Twist the knife a little bit. But he's giving her some perspective. There's a reason why your daddy still ain't reigning. There's a reason why Jonathan ain't on the throne. They're not concerned. They were not concerned with the things that God said to concern yourself with. And what does he say? To appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself. Yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. He is saying, I plan, if God so leads, that I will do the most humiliating thing you could possibly think of a king to do if God tells me to do it. If God tells me to do it, I will be more contemptible than what you've seen here today. If there was a little, if there was a little driftage of clothing or if I'm in my underwear dancing or whatever the case may be, if God tells me to do it, I'm going to care more about the presence of God than I'm going to care about even your presence, Michael. It matters more to me that I do what God has called me to do. Why did he say he was a man after God's own heart again? Because he was willing to do all that God wills. There was not limitation and there were not parameters and boundaries to that. He was willing to be obedient to God. And so, like, you know, one of my favorite things to do is to embarrass my kids. Like, when I say Cooper's name right now, the fact that he's on that front row is killing him right now. But God put me on this earth to keep him humble in that way, right? Every parent recognizes this. He's shaking his head now. He don't like it. But I love to pick him up from school and start screaming how much I love him with all of his, all these girls around him. And he starts picking up the pace, and it just makes me louder, right? Like he starts running to the car and like diving in Dukes of Hazard style. And I'm still, oh, baby, I love you. You look so cute today, you know. Uh, with my middle kid, I'm always doing uh, do, like flossing in the middle of the hall, getting ready for priority kids. And I'm like, hey, y'all, I'm, I'm Hudson's dad. Did you know that? Yeah, like I'm, I'm Hudson's dad. Good to see y'all. Nice to have you today. Yeah, he loves it. He thinks it. I'm, like, I'm, I'm, I'm cool, aren't I? Right? And I just love it. Now, Maddie thinks I'm really cool, and so that's why she's my favorite. But <laughs> humiliate him, right? He says, listen, if you were a little embarrassed today, being in the presence of God 
for me is going to humiliate you later. Because I desire him more than I desire you. Boy, that's, some, that's a word for a marriage, by the way. I desire you more than I desire. I desire him more than I desire you. It's that is key. Although that might stick in our, the crawl of our Nicholas Sparks culture. That key is what will breathe life into your marriage. Because guess what? You seek God for love, you won't run out. I'll become even more contemptible, even more undignified than this. David did not care. She goes as far to call her husband, the king, worthless. He was a pervert. He was exposing himself. How, how dare he respond in this way? But David was a worshiper. Before anything else, before king, before shepherd, before food delivery kid, David was a worshiper. Turn to Psalm 27. Psalm 27. David had erected a temple, a tent, where God would abide. He would live in Jerusalem in this tent, like the tabernacle that was with them in the wilderness. The parade was leading to this tent, and then he would make sacrifices, and he would devote the country to the Lord afresh and anew. But what we have in Psalm chapter 27 is insight into one of the worship, private worship services David has in the presence of God. Now he is not in the Holy of Holies, but he is in the tabernacle. He is in the tent. And he is worshiping God in, Acts, in, in Psalm 27. Listen what it says in verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord... And that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Do you remember we talked about Saul and how much Saul wanted all the finer things? How much Saul was all about himself and the pride that he had? David is saying here, I live in a palace. I have asked God for one thing, and that is to never leave his presence. Do you know what that meant? I'd rather camp out in this tent with God than I would to go back to my plush palace. I'd rather live in the presence of God, sleeping on a dirt floor in a meager tent, than to go back and be separated from his presence. David was a worshiper. So what else he says? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. You know what he's saying? Kings had pretty strong places to go when they were under distress. When enemies would come and fight them, they would run and lock themselves in the stronghold. Our country, in fact, the president, right, has a place to go. If it's all breaking loose, he has a place to go, hid away in a stronghold, in, in a stronghold, impenetrable. That's where kings go when things go wrong. David said, I would rather live in the, I would rather be in the structure of a cloth 
content with the presence of God than to be locked in the greatest of strongholds. I would I am safer in the presence of the Lord in this tent than I am in some high castle. This is perspective. He will hide me in the shelter in his day of trouble. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices and shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. You have said, seek my face. So God, I'm coming after your face. I want you more than anything else. There is not protection apart from you. There is not success apart from you. I desire your presence. It is only your presence that can satisfy. That's what David said. God's presence was restored to the people, but that, even that was not enough for David. Look at thirdly. God's presence remained. So here's what David was saying. I would rather live in a tent than have the greatest of accommodations. Uh, when I started at Lindsay Lane, maybe a year or two after I started, we got engaged with a company, uh, partnered with a company called The Seed Company. And the whole directive of The Seed Company was to translate the Bible in languages of unreached people group that did not have a copy of God's Word in their original language. Um, and so what I hold in front of you, we targeted what was known as the Ela people. They live in Africa. And there was not, before Lindsay Lane got involved, there was not an existing translation of God's Word um, that we are aware of that was in their language. And so when they begin to get to work, it's a very, very expensive project, as you can imagine, to translate God's Word. And what I have in front, in, in front of you here is probably the cheapest made Bible I've ever seen. It's cheap. The paper is not fine and glossy. It is paper, and that's it. The cover is like this construction paper material almost and even the copy of God's word this is not the full Bible as you can see that's pretty small but they would literally just take excerpts from the Bible and translate it chapters at a time and translate it they didn't the people were so hungry for it they didn't want to wait till the entire Bible was translated so like whatever you got send it and so they'd get a little bit and they'd send it and they'd get a little bit and they'd send it and I heard someone say, I believe it was Dusty, the pastor of our church, that went over there and handed the Bible to one of these people, and the man said, finally, through translator, obviously, said, finally, God speaks my language. You want to talk about being hungry for God's word. Biblical illiteracy is epidemic in the world, and many of those places, it's because there is no translation. So our church became passionate about that. I'm not sure where our progress is. I, I would like to update y'all on that. And maybe I, I will and check into that. But translating that Bible, the full Bible, 
This is, the, this is the, um, some Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and some of the New Testament here. But it's God's word, and they're hungry and thirsty for it. That's what we see in David, right? That's what we see in his heart, and that's what we see in his life. But it wasn't enough just for it to be temporary. God's presence remained. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, when the king lived in his house, so chapter 5, he's anointed king. Chapter 6, the Ark of the Covenant is getting here. Chapter 7, it is time to take the next step. Now, when the king had lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell. This is David saying this, not God. This is David saying this. See now, I dwell in a house of cedar. Here's this palace, and the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. You know what Nathan is actually saying? By the way, Nathan, the only time he came to David was not to tell him he's the man, which we'll talk about that. Nathan had a part to play in this life even before the sin of Bathsheba, right? He tells Nathan, I'm in a really nice house, and God's presence lives in a tent. And Nathan says, I smell what you stepping in, big boy. I'm picking up what you laying down. Go and do all that is in your heart. Go and tell my... But then Nathan said to the king, go into your heart, all for the Lord is with you. But the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Would you do that? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt. To this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. This is the tabernacle, right? I've been living in this temporary housing and moving from place to place. In all the places where I have moved, with all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? He said, Did I ask anybody at any time to build me a house? The answer to that is no, right? No, I've never asked that. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. You would build a permanent dwelling for me. I will establish your kingdom forever. This is David taking the initiative of a worshiper. Seeking not just a temporary place where some power could come in and rip it up. But I want to make the presence of God a fixture in our culture. Solomon's temple would be the greatest architectural feat known to man in that day. I want God to be a permanent place. And the same reason that we were setting up and tearing down in the gym, we wanted to be a permanent place. Why? We wanted to show investment. David was so moved by the presence of God that he didn't want it to be temporary. He wanted it to be permanent. I want God here. 
God said, because of that heart, I will make a great name for you. Now, David didn't get to build the temple. Now, you read Chronicles, and he provided his son Solomon with everything he needed. Even down to the, the ambiance music. He had worshipers who were ready as they were swinging hammers to be singing while they were building. He thought of everything and had it all laid out. He bought the land. He had all the materials. He had all the stuff, all the expertise, all the guys all but hired. And had the the choir ready to sing as they did it, right? Like he did everything. But he wasn't allowed to build the temple. He was a man of war. He wasn't allowed to build it. But it moved the heart of God. Look at 2 Samuel 7, 12 as we close. This is God speaking. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne Of his kingdom forever. This is partially fulfilled in his son Solomon. Solomon builds him a house. He builds him a very ornate house. But it is the promise and the presence of God that still made the difference for Israel. I showed you the very, very crude copy of God's word here. Now I want to show you a gift that I received when I was in college. This is a very expensive Bible. I don't know how expensive it is now. I know how expensive it was back back when I graduated from college. This is a calf skin leather study Bible. Uh, Calf skin, like baby cow. Like kind of graphic. Try not to think about it because you kind of have to. Like going back into the Old Testament a little bit like to open this Bible. But... um, This is a very expensive Bible. It's the finest leather that I know of that you can buy. It has a cloth covering that you actually keep it in. Um, The binding is great. It's not wrinkled and distorted like this one is. Pages aren't coming out of it. It's got even little handy-dandy bookmarks that apparently my dog has enjoyed. But this is a Bible. And though it looks nicer and cleaner and better presented, the contents of this are just as faithful as they are to the African bush people. People have asked us before, just recently actually, what do we do to dispose of a Bible? Let me encourage you with something. This Bible is not authoritative in the fact that of its binding and its printing And all of those things. As I read this, the ink on paper is exactly what it is. Maybe it's expensive and maybe it is worthless. But what is written within it is the revelation of God. God is not speaking of a Bible when he is talking about his word. He is talking about the word made flesh who dwelt among us and how God has revealed himself as for humanity. This Bible may pass away really soon. It's not well made. I had to find it in my storage. It's not well made. This Bible may last a little bit longer, but at some point this Bible will tatter and it will tear and it will be no more. But what is written within it 
is the presence and the power of God. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Regardless of the presentation, David wanted a permanent place for God. It moved the heart of God. But you know what's beautiful about that? In his prophecy that I will establish a kingdom forever, he is also not just speaking of Solomon. He's talking about one who would come from David. He's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about Jesus. And if David knew the access that we have to God, to his presence, it would literally blow if his mind. If he is dancing in a parade in his underwear because the presence of God is with him, what would David do if the presence of God was offered to be in him? God's presence in the New Testament is not housed in brick and mortar. It's not housed in cloth or tabernacle. We are the temple of the living God. What is so sad in this world is it's one thing for Africans, the Elah people, to be illiterate about God's revelation of himself. It's another thing for us in a Western culture to have 18 copies of this and be just as illiterate. Don't say we don't presume on the presence of God. Don't say we don't take it for granted. If we loved it as David loved it, and God even enhanced it to the extent that we carry his presence with us, may we never not be led by that presence. So I just want you to bow your head and close your eyes. Boy, David would have given anything to experience God's presence that way. You know why? Because he was a worshiper. He worshiped God in spirit and in truth. May I live in the tent of God all the days of my life. May I never again enter the luxury of my palace. presence is the point and now it's made available to us so so I want to talk to someone in this room who may not have the presence of God in their life there's never been a time where you have confessed your sins that you have laid aside yourself you have repented of your sins you have turned from your sin and you have asked God to come in and to be the Lord and the Savior of your And if that's you in this room, my friend, you don't have to settle for the presence of God in this room. You can leave today with the presence of God within you. It's not about coming to church on Sunday. That's Old Testament stuff. The throne of Jesus is established forever and he is our Lord and he is our Savior. And if you will, whosoever would call on the name of the Lord, you can be saved. So if you need that access to Jesus today, you need that relationship with him, would you just respond to that incredible invitation of his presence? Say, God, 
I mean, you may not know all the words to say, but God, I know I love you. I know that I'm a sinner and that I've been separated from you. And I pray that you would come into my life and forgive me and restore me and allow your presence to live within me. May my body, may my heart be your home. Just pray that prayer in the vulnerableness of this moment, in the secrecy of this moment between your heart to God's. You just tell him that. If you're here, you don't know Jesus. Today you made the decision to follow him in obedience. I would ask that you would let somebody know. I would ask that you'd find somebody. In just a moment, I'm going to say amen. And i got news for you. There's a lot of church folk that got a lot of business to do with the Lord. There's a lot of people that know they have a relationship with Jesus that have business to do with the Lord because our, our life doesn't always reflect that. Things have gotten in the way. But if you're here and you made that decision for the first time, I'm here at the front. I would love to talk to you. I'd love to get you hooked up with a counselor, a decision counselor, that would love to talk to you about the new life you have in Jesus. Whether you've been here, this is your first time or your 101st time, would you come and be obedient to God? Just like David, I don't care what other people think. Y'all, I know what I'm asking. I know there's people watching. I know there's people looking, but David didn't care. Why? Because he was worshiping God. May what God thinks of us be more important to us than what others think of us. And would you respond in boldness? If you're here and you need to respond in another way, this altar is open for you. Maybe you need to come and maybe you need to join our church. Join what God's doing here. Be a part of it. Maybe you need to be baptized. Take the example of Micah. Make public what Christ has already done in your heart. Or maybe you have no idea what you need to do, and I can help you with that too. Whatever it is, I just pray that you would be obedient to God as he leads. As his presence moves, would you move with him? Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your presence that's in this place. We trust you, God, to move on the hearts of your people. Whether public or private, we pray that you would make a difference in our lives. May we be people that hunger and thirst for your presence. And may that satisfy us more than anything in this life. God, we love you. Let that be true of us today as we follow you as an audience of one. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand to your feet as we sing? Would you come? If you need to make a decision, whatever that is, I'm here. would love to talk to you. Would you come? This altar is open. You can lay some things down. Whatever you need to do, we pray that you would respond. Amen.